Well, again, uh, welcome to Hope Lower Town. We are um, in week three of nine of going through the minor prophet Hosea. And again, Hosea is called a minor prophet, not because he's less important than the major prophets, uh, but simply because uh, he is um, uh, there's not as much written about. Uh, he didn't write as much down as the major prophets. And so that is why uh, he's called a minor prophet. Uh, if you're checking out hope, let me just give a little uh, caveat, a little bit of warning here today. <laughs> this is a heavy passage. And, and if anything, if you learn anything uh, from this passage today, is really the idea that we don't, we don't stray from the difficult conversations. Uh, and so this is a, a heavy text. It's, um, I'm glad there are not children present, glad the nursery is open. Uh, and, uh, but I'm not gonna hold back. And yet I, I like to use a little bit of humor um, today, this text just doesn't warrant that, uh, and uh, at least I won't do it on purpose. That's usually how, how my humor enters into my sermons, is not, uh, not pre, uh, preconceived humor. So uh, let me just uh, uh, at least give that caveat. Um, today, Jose is going to talk about wounds, uh, going to talk about being betrayed, and I think if uh, you have a pulse, at some point in your life, you've been hurt by somebody. Uh, it could have been a relational uh, thing. It could, it could be an institutional hurt, uh, maybe from an employer, someone you worked with for a long time, and it just, out of nowhere, hey, we got to cut you. Maybe it was even due to COVID stuff and cutbacks. Like, well, why, why me? Why does this happen? Hey, I can do this from home, whatever. Could have been hurt. Could have been, uh, most likely, for a lot of us, the church. Uh, that the church abused in some way, in some kind of power, in some kind of position, or, or just was spiritually abusive. That you got to be this way, act this way, give this kind of money, and then maybe God will bless you and just hurt, hurt by that. Uh, it could be relational, and I think uh, we could look at that in multiple ways. It could be our friends. Um, I know as a pastor, this past year has been hard for me uh, relationally with, with people that I love, that I care about, uh, that have hurt hurt me. And it's hard. And I'm sure you have um, situations like that as well. It could be familial uh, with family, uh, brothers and sisters, or mom and dad, whoever it may be that just, I've disowned them or they've disowned me. We've got some kind of contention. I just, doesn't matter how hard and it, it's, it's, it's heavy. Uh, not that long ago, Nolan, a lot of you know Nolan, he kind of gave me an informal interview and just asked me about wounds in ministry. Uh, and I gave him a few that, that man, this, this, this hurt me. And it still affects me. To me, that's what a, a wound, that's kind of how I defined it. As, uh, I'm, I'm still bleeding out from this wound. You know, it hasn't healed quite yet. And so I think we can put ourselves in this passage today of saying, I know what it's like to feel betrayed, except in this passage today, it's not somebody else betraying us. It's actually us doing the betraying. And so this week's sermon is going to be titled, But She Forgot, But Me, She Forgot. This is coming from this text in Hosea. That Yahweh, God the Father, is going to say this of Israel, of his chosen people. But me, she forgot. We're going to talk about spiritual adultery. Before I get into today's text, I want to go back a little bit. We covered a lot, uh, just the historical side of things. And so... Uh, when Hosea was writing this, the, the kingdom was divided. 
uh, that you had King Saul, then that was given to King David, and then David had Solomon, and then he has his son Rehoboam, who's going to be uh, the king of Judah in the south, and then you have Rehoboam, uh, who's going to be, sorry, Jeroboam, who's going to be the king in the north, and immediately, that's four kings later, there's just major apostasy that, that uh, Jeroboam in the north and Israel, that, that the northern kingdom is called there, uh, sets up these false um, uh, temples and Dan and Bethel, and he makes these golden uh, calves uh, to represent the, their God of Israel and complete idolatry. And so again, looking at chapter one, verse two, kind of what this whole book is about. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And I, and I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I, I think this is actually really important to know. That this promiscuous woman, this adulterous woman, is not a prostitute. All right? That this wasn't some woman who was backed into a corner, needed to pay some bills, and made some decisions that maybe she regrets. That's not this woman. This is a woman who's just an adulteress, who just is unfaithful over and over and over again by choice. I think that's important. I think, it, I think it weighs that a little bit differently. So looked at this idea of this prophetic performance arc that God calls Hosea and a lot of prophets, I want you to, to do something to represent now my relationship with Israel. And so he says, I want you to go and marry this woman named Gomer who's, who's going to commit adultery and I want you to have kids with her. And so last week we looked at these three children that were born. That I want you to name them Jezreel, which we looked at, this is just blood and death, this horrible battle that happened in Jezreel and betrayal. And the second child, I want you to name Lo Rohamah, which means not loved. You are not loved. Like that's my child's name as Hosea and Gomer are naming their little baby girl. It's not loved. That's heavy. The third child, Lo Ami, which means not my people. And I mentioned, I brought up Paul Harvey uh, if you don't know who he is, I'm not going to get into it, but he had this radio broadcast where he ended it. He said, and now you know the rest of the story. And last week ended on a high note. At the end of chapter one, God tells Hosea, but I'm not going to forget you. I'm actually going to rename these children and I'm going to rename my people. Instead of not loved, you are going to be loved. Instead of a people who have not received mercy, you have received mercy looking at First uh, Peter chapter two. And, and once you were not a people, but now you are my people. And we know the rest of the story. But today, God now is going to hone in on his relationship with Israel. Hosea is going to hone in on his relationship with Gomer. And he's going to sit there and he's going to stay there. And we're not going to hear the rest of the story, but we do know the rest of the story. So let's look at this, God's relationship with Israel. Now, in the context of this in chapter 2, this is Hosea addressing his wife, Gomer, but clearly... This is also God addressing his relationship with his bride, with his wife, with Israel. So Hosea says this in verse two, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. So you, can, you can see Hosea maybe talking to his children about, about his mom, about their mom, right? Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and I will make her as bare as on the day she was born. 
I will make her like a desert and turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. That's some heavy statements for the God of the universe to say to his chosen people. Why is it, how is it that God is even allowed to talk like this to his people? Well, it comes back to, to covenants. And so I want to maybe just take a little, little, little side sermon here, a little sermonette in the sermon, if you will. And I want to look at covenants. It's a phrase that we use all the time, but what is a covenant? Uh, if you're married, you've probably had that language at your wedding that we're going to enter into a covenant relationship together. A covenant is, is simply a chosen relationship when two parties make a binding promise and they work together for a common goal. So if you're married, we've made a binding contract, a covenant with one another to move forward. And it's different from a contract. A lot of us have signed contracts with a bank for a house or fill in the blank. We know what a contract is. It's different from a contract in that it's relational. It's personal. It's not just business. Right? We're not going down to the mattresses. I see, I said there was like a mini humor. I, was, I guess Godfather's not really funny, so I guess it's not really humor, is it? It's different. So I want to just go back. I'm not going to cover all five, um, some of you would argue six covenants, but I'm going to look at just three. And I'll start with the uh, Noahic covenant. And so this is going back. This is God now talking to Noah, the survivors of the flood, and this is what God says to Noah and his family. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. I'm, this is relational. This is personal that I am making between you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. That will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay, so let's go. I forgot to mention this. There's, there's two different kinds of covenants, conditional and unconditional. Conditional means I do this, you do that right? Quid pro quo, tit for tat, right? Unconditional is I'm just doing this. You don't have a say in this. I'm going to just do this for you. That's unconditional, right? And God does both with Israel, okay? So, so going back, he's making this covenant with Noah, and he says, Whatever, whenever I bring the clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all life. This is, to me, uh, the most humorous of all the covenants um, because God could use any other element to destroy all life, <laughs> but he's like, but not water. We're never doing that again, <laughs> but everything else, that's still on the table. Okay, we're, not, we're not removing that from the table. All right, so whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every kind on the earth. Okay, so this is, this is an unconditional covenant. God just says, I'm not doing this anymore, period, end of story. There's nothing that living creatures could do to make me destroy the earth again with water. Not gonna happen. Okay, it's unconditional covenant. Skipping forward a lot in the timeline, we get to Abraham. Abram's still in this story. And Genesis 15, I've joked about R.C. Sproul, that his favorite book, a theologian, uh, passed away back in 17, I believe that his favorite verse was Genesis 15, 17. And, and because of that, it's quickly become my favorite verse as well. But let's, let's uh, read this covenant. But Abram said, so God takes Abraham out. He says, look at all the stars. See the stars? Yeah, you're going to have that many descendants. You see this land? It's all going to be yours. 
And he believes, and it's counted unto him as righteousness. He has faith in the promises of God, and he's redeemed. He's counted righteous, not because of anything he did, but because of the faith that he has in the promises of God. And Abram says, after God makes all these claims, he says, sovereign Lord, but how, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? I believe you, I trust you, but how do I know this is actually going to happen? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Right? I'm sure Abram's like, I, I just asked, like, how do I know? I didn't need a shopping list. I just want to know, how do I gain possession of this thing that you just promised? But Abram brought all these things to him, and he cuts them in two and arranged them in halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, and the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The Lord said to him, know for certain. Let me just pause, give you a little context, right? So this is what would happen with, with other nations. They would make a covenant, a binding contract with one another, and an alliance or something like that. This is what they would do. They would take animals or bodies and they would, they would split them in half and these two would walk hand in hand or the kings would walk together through these animal carcasses and say, if I break my, co my covenant with you, then let happen to me what has happened to these animals. It was very symbolic. And so God is about to do this with Abraham. But what does he do? He sets Abraham to the side and he's going to make this covenant now. The Lord says to Abram, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not of their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. I know a lot of you, probably nobody remembers this, but a couple years ago we walked through uh, the book of Exodus. We were talking about this when Israelites became enslaved in Egypt and how God sets them free but here, God is telling Abram, this is going to happen. And I remember I was reading, I was listening to a, a Jewish rabbi, actually. She was up from Duluth, uh, and then she recently went to Atlanta. And she had this phrase about this, that she said, why is it? Think about this. Why does God tell Abraham, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers, right? And they're going to be, I'm going to punish that nation. They're going to, why not just jump to 15 and just say, you're going to go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age? What does this have to do with anything with the other, right? And, I'm, and I will never forget what she said. She said, because for her, she was talking about Israelites and their, her ancestry. She said, because for us as an Israelite, slavery is a prerequisite for freedom. And man, that'll preach. That there's every, every single one of us, and I, every single week I quote, I, I quote, I quote Galatians 3, right? That you've been free to be free. So don't submit, therefore, again, under the yoke of slavery to sin and to, and to the law. You've been set free. And so every single person in this room, we, the prerequisite for our freedom in Christ is slavery. It's exactly the same thing. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here. This land that I've promised for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. And here's what happens. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared. And what happens? It passes between the pieces. That here we have God, the creator of the universe, now making a very unconditional covenant with Abram and the nation of Israel. And saying, this is going to happen. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your descendants, doesn't matter what you do, this is going to happen. 
So much so that I stake my own deity on it. That if this doesn't come true, then let me, the creator, cease to exist. It will happen. It's unconditional. Now that's the covenant that God makes. But then he adds to it later on when we get to Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see it very clearly. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then verses 15. So God now is making a covenant. He's, he, he's superseding this old covenant. It's still true. This is all going to happen. But now we're going to add on to this. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2. If you fully, so here it is, right here, right off the bat. If, all right, that, that implies a condition. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then, and then Yahweh's going to now list all of these blessings if they obey. And then, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all of these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then he lists a bunch of curses. This is conditional. I'm making this covenant, but if you obey, I bless. If you don't obey, I curse. It's pretty straightforward. And so we can see after all of this, Israel my people, you have a choice in this matter. And what we see Hosea in this passage really saying, and what God is saying to his people, is saying, I've held up my part of the deal. I made an unconditional promise this would be true. Guess what? You are in the land. You have descendants. You own the land. I kept up my bargain, but now you've been unfaithful. So that's why God can use language like this to his people. So what happens he finally then just says, all right, have it your way, Israel. You want it, you got it. You want to go and worship other gods? You want to, you want to pretend like I don't exist? You want to pre pretend like I didn't set you up here in this position of power in this nation? All right, fine. I'm going to let you do your thing. Verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. So Israel is saying, yeah, I have all these things and I'm good, but God, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with these other gods, my other lovers, not my husband. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes and I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them and not find them. And so while this is true of Israel, this is also true of every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. So the last slide said, have it your way, Israel. Now we can just say, have it your way, fill in the blank, fill your name in there. And I go to Romans chapter 1, where this is explicitly taught. Where God says, I, I've made this pathway clear. You're rejecting me. So, okay. Let's see how that goes for you. All right, if anyone in here, if you've raised kids, you've probably had to do that in your life. Hey, don't touch that. You're going to get burnt. Don't touch that. You're going to get burnt. Don't touch that. You're going to get burnt. All right, fine, touch it. Let's just see what happens. You're going to learn. And that's exactly what our father does in a loving way. 
Except it's not, this is a burn. It's not just a quick sear on an oven, okay? It's my life. It's my soul. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, okay? It's, it's plain to them because God has made it plain. How does he make who he is and his existence plain? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his invisible attributes, mainly his, inter- his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Now we can look around and obviously we can argue this and we can debate this and the existence of God and, and talk about all these different uh, ontological arguments and, and, and all these different apologetics and ways. How do we know the existence of God? And what God is saying here is if they really open their eyes, they can see me. They've been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But, their think, but in their thinking, they became futile and their foolish hearts were, dark, dark, were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and of birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires, their hearts, to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the created things rather than their creator. That's the exchange that every single human being does in their heart. That we look at something around us and we go, ah, I like that. You made that? Yeah, I like this thing that you made more than you. I'm out. And God's like, is that what you want? Is that what you really want? All right. Let's see how that works out for you. Then we're going to see that only after she learns her lesson, only after Israel learns their lesson, only after Gomer learns her lesson, only after we learn our lesson, then we will say, but only after we, that day, and it hasn't happened yet, okay? So, so in this context, Hosea or God is having a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical conversation with their bride. So I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do, because when you finally realize who I am and what my relationship is to you, then what you're going to say to me is this, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Uh, Paul uh, reminded me this, this last week, he, he was like, when we were reading this passage, he was just like, this just reminds me of the prodigal son. This reminds me of, of the lost son, the son who runs away from his dad. That's him and his brother and his dad. And he, the dad is obviously wealthy, has a lot of land, property, animals, all these different things, very wealthy. And the younger son goes to the dad and says, I'm done. Like, I'm sick of working for you. I'm sick of you telling me what to do. Give me my inheritance. Give me my money. I'm out. And just like this, the father says, if that's what you really want, okay, go. And so like God and Israel and Hosea too, like God and us in Romans chapter 1 and Luke chapter 15, when Jesus is telling this parable, this story, This is the prodigal son after he had spent everything, all of his money and lost everything on riotous living. When he came to his senses, he said, how 
Many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. It's only when we realize that we've got nothing. When God says, fine, you want it? Go ahead. That we really learn some lessons in life. So let's go back to this Hosea passage. She's under the impression that all she has is from her, her lovers, from her false gods. So then she'll say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is just a false god of the area of the Canaanites and a lot of, a lot of the other uh, nations that were around the area, and just a god of, of fertility. This could be um, not just physical fertility of having children, but also of, of land, uh, kind of the god of rain. Uh, think Thor, uh, if you will. And uh, in a very arid climate, uh, where they don't get a lot of rain and, and therefore no food grows, Baal was king of the false gods. And so what's going on here? God gives the gift to his bride, and the bride in turn says, these are from my other God, my, my other man that I'm with, not my husband, and so I'm going to actually use these gifts that my husband gives me to treat this guy right. I think we got to stop here, and we got to realize that this is us. This is me. I'm not going to speak for everybody, but man, this is me. We take our God-given talents and we use it for our own glory, our own pleasure. I think this has obviously, I think, and recently been true of churches. If you Google anything, there's always some megachurch pastor having some kind of affair, embezzling some kind of money, doing something where God has given this individual everything and in turn they say, no, I don't want you, God, the one who gave me this stuff. I'm going to go worship this creation rather than the creator. And the sad part is, is only the big names get the news. Because I'm telling you, the same exact thing happens in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. I'm not picking on Iowa. That was just the state that popped in my head. It happens everywhere. And I've got to be careful not to do this. Because you've given me a gift, but now I want to use this for my gain, for my God. And what's usually what happens is we always think that, oh yeah, it's other people, that's that person or that church or that, that business. I think what this passage is saying is, it's you, it's me. And then Yahweh shows up again, God shows up and he says, you want to tr treat me less than your husband? I'm going to show you how much more than a husband I really am to you. I'm your creator. So in Hosea chapter two and verse nine, he says, therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers and no one will take her out of my hand. I will not stop, I, I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all of her appointed festivals. And there's a lot we could say there. I'm not gonna get into what all that stuff means uh, just for time's sake. But what's interesting here is this is a negative thing for the nation of Israel. I'm going to remove these festivals, these feasts, 
But when Christ enters the scene, it's actually a good thing. We don't need these things anymore. We have Jesus who fulfills all these things. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. And she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me, she forgot, declares the Lord. I don't normally do this. Actually, I don't think I've ever done this, but I think we need to stop here. So I'm going to give a gospel application, but I'm not quite finished. I want to stop here. Because this is where our text ends for today. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Period. Done. But again, we, we know the rest of the story. And while we're about to get to the good news, this passage is written so we stop and we reflect and we think. And we need to sit in this. We need to examine our own hearts. We're going to take communion in just a little bit. And we're going to partake of these elements that represent the blood and the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can remember our spiritual adultery, and the forgiveness that Christ offers. We need to think about the numerous and even innumerable ways in which we commit idolatry against our creator. Let me define spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is any time, anything, takes the place of Christ on the throne of my heart. I'm going to do a cool preacher trick, and I'm going to repeat that so you remember it, all right? Spiritual adultery is any time, anything takes the place of Christ in the throne of my heart. Because here's the reality. Christ is on the throne, period. He's seated on the big T throne. He's in control. He's sovereign. Anything and everything that happens is because he has ordained these things to happen. He's in control. I cannot remove God from that throne. But you know what I can do? Just like Israel is I can take him off the throne of my heart. I can do that. I can dethrone the king of my heart. I can make it whatever I want it to be. I can replace him, most likely, with the good gifts that he's given me. This could be my job. You have no idea how many pastors that I know have a mistress of the church. But they're so devoted to the ministry that it becomes a false god. And they neglect their own family. The gift of my wife or a spouse. My wife is a terrible savior. And I am a terrible savior to my wife. I think there are some of you that maybe even need to dethrone the little, the, the small tea, the, the, the throne of idol in our lives of even singleness. Singleness is a terrible savior. To think, I don't need anybody else. I can do this on my own. No, you can't. You need Jesus. My kids, man, I love my kids. They're good and they're terrible, but man, I love them. Pastor's kids are always terrible. So I'm just, you know, just setting that up right now. <laughs> so don't get your hopes up with my kids. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's my education, the letters before or after my name, and what school I went to. These are good things. But over and over again, we look at this thing that's a gift from God and we say, yeah, I, I, I like this thing. You, I don't know, man. It just sometimes you seem distant. You don't seem present in my life. You don't fulfill this 
immediate need that I have in my life. And so I'm going to I'm going to dethrone you and I'm going to put this created thing on the throne of my heart. And I'm going to bow the knee to that thing. And unfortunately, I think in a good way, like a loving father says, is that really what you want? Because, and I think as we move on, because it isn't until we realize that we have nothing that God shows us that we actually have something. There's a, a music group uh, called Flannel Graph that I love. Anybody heard of Flannel Graph, this band? Probably not. It's just an indie, folksy kind of band. Um, I don't listen to a lot of music, and so it's weird uh, when I find a group that I'm like the only one uh, that listens to them. Uh, but Flannel Graph is a play on, if, if you grew up in the church, you probably remember these, the Flannel Graph boards. Anybody remember the Flannel Graph boards? Yeah, all right, they would, there would be this green, usually this green background, and then they'd put the, and that's kind of what the picture is, like cutouts of people, and they'd stick to this flannel graph board. It was before, you know, like TV and the internet. Um, and so they would use these flannel graph boards to tell a visual story to kids. And so that's kind of the play here on this. But the guy that played King David also was Jesus and also was Saul. It was the same, same character. It was very confusing as a small child. Anyways, flannel graph, they write this song. It's called Apple Pie. And it's a song about the prodigal son. And years ago, I tried to read just a portion of this song, and I got very emotional. So I got my cry out of the way this morning, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it together for you. And I want to read this. It's called Apple Pie, again, about the prodigal son. And, uh, and it's called Apple Pie because there's a phrase where it says, I had everything. I lived like a king in America and ate my apple pie. And it's just, that's kind of how the lyrics go. Now, this is what the lyrics say. But all the party lights went out, and I was left alone. And the amount of money, this is not going to work. I can't do this. Ha! The amount of money that I had left was the amount of love that I was shown. And I had nothing. Oh, nothing. Yeah, I had nothing. Yeah, I had nothing. And just like the prodigal son in that moment says, No. No, but I had something, oh, something. I had something, and then the word changes. I had somebody. So I gathered up all of my pride, and I hitchhiked to a town where my dignity had died. And he was waiting. And he ran, and he kissed me. That's the father. That's the love of the Christ on, on the throne. That we can betray him, we can go to our little idols, and we can worship this and commit spiritual adultery and be the gomer and play the whore. And over and over, we turn around and he's waiting, he's watching for us and he runs and he embraces us and he kisses us. That's the love of the Father. He wants us to know that we have somebody let me just read from the story in Luke, and we'll conclude. This is the parable that Jesus is telling. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, doesn't even acknowledge him. He's still just hugging him, just so glad. And he calls out the servants, quick, 
Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a party. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in a field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because of him, because he was back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And what does the father do? Even in that situation, the father goes out and pleads with him, with the older brother. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never, you never gave me even a goat so that I could go celebrate with my friends. I'm telling you, there's probably people in this room that are, we're, both, we're both sons in this story. But we're the older brother. I haven't committed adultery. I've never doubted my faith. I've been, I've been serving Yahweh. I've been serving God faithfully my whole life. Years ago, I wasn't really preaching through this text, but I, I remember uh, mentioning it. And I was reading it, and I got so overwhelmed with conviction, my own heart, in this matter of being the older brother, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. I didn't say it at that moment. Uh, but there was a gentleman, still is a gentleman, named Kanye West. Heard of him? And he had just written his album, Jesus is King. And it was a great, I, I love the album. I think it was a great album. But what happened? Kanye writes this song. And in my mind, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, Kanye's my younger brother. He was out living wherever he wanted to live, and he comes to Jesus, and what's he do? He says, I'm going to start a church. Boom, mega church. And here I am reading this, and I'm going, I just want a goat. Just give me a goat. I'm working my tail off here. I just want a goat. And I got so overwhelmed with conviction. I need Jesus, because all of a sudden, my work, my church, my job, my work ethic, fill in the blank, become the Jesus, the little, the little God of my heart. And I needed to repent of that, and I did. I, somehow I kept it together, and I was like, somehow words were coming out of my mouth, and I'm repenting in the back of my brain. Continuing the story, but when this son of yours, this older brother is still talking here, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf and calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, your brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So now in gospel application, in conclusion, gospel application 2.0, somehow, I don't know how this happened. I didn't finish my thought. I don't know what would happen here. That's uh, why so we take, uh, take the gospel seriously, not ourselves. <laughs> when we... When we recognize our lostness, our unfaithfulness, our, you fill in your blank. This is a, you know, choose your own adventure uh, Sunday. That's not true. I, I wrote it in here. When we recognize our lostness, our unfaithfulness, our spiritual adultery is when we, with our heads held low, go back to the Father, repent of our sin, and I'm telling you, he sees us, he's waiting for us, and he runs to us, and he embraces us, and he kissed me. Let me pray, and then we will have our time of communion. If you didn't get the elements, they're out in the back in the lobby. And uh, you guys can come on up. 
And uh, they're just the, the elements that uh, represent the bread, which represents the body of Christ that, that's broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that was poured out for our forgiveness of our sins. But that same God, that same father loved us so much that he sends his own son to die for us and to cover our spiritual adultery so that we can embrace the father. And we get to remember that. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All I would ask that you're a follower of Jesus. And if you've bent the knee to King Jesus, maybe today is the first time. Maybe today is the first time you heard about this father who's waiting for you, who loves you, regardless of what you've done. We'd love to have you protect these elements with us. Let's pray, and we'll continue through song and these elements as you see uh, led to partake of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. And even though it's, it's heavy, even though it's confusing maybe at times of how is it that a loving God could do this to his people, to his bride. God, we are the ones who have been unfaithful to you. So God, I pray that you would reveal anything in our hearts, that your spirit would just awaken something in our hearts and our souls to go, I need to dethrone that thing, that created thing and replace it with the creator, knowing full well that you love us, that you will forgive us of our sins, that you will remove those sins as far as the east is from the west, that they are gone forever. So God, I pray now as we lift up our hearts, as we partake of these elements, as we viscerally get to taste and remember and see that you are good and you love us, that you'd receive the honor and the glory that's due your name. And it's in Jesus' most precious name that we pray. Amen.